Welcome to Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach with Mark Gellard and Candy Reid. Time for the next edition of Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach with Mark Gellard and me, Candy Reid. Mark, we've got Eddie Elliott, the coach of Lauren Davis, coming up. Unfortunately, with our time scales and uh, the fact that we're on three different continents, it made it a little difficult for all three of us to get together. So I've independently spoken to him and uh, we'll run that piece after we've spoken and then do the listener questions at the end, if that's all right with you. And then perhaps in next week's podcast, you can react to what Eddie said about him and his player, Lauren Davis. How does that sound? No, absolutely. I'm looking forward to hear Eddie's comments. Obviously, it'd be nice to get his insights and uh, just double check they didn't say anything bad about there were only a, a couple of things I thought were a bit off off the cliff, but you can react accordingly uh, next week. Um, so we find you once again in Guangzhou, where you've just had a, an excellent performance. Magda got to the final of the 250 event. Give us a, a brief recollection of how that went. Yeah, it was a quick turnaround after US Open straight over to San Diego and then um, came over to Guangzhou, which is where Magda and I actually first began our collaboration in about 2018. So it was really nice to be back. Um, Yeah, really great tournament. The tournament was fantastic. Beautiful facility, a new one in a part of Guangzhou called Nansha. So it was a really fun place, fun week, great facility, and a really good week. We kind of got our our butts kicked in the final by Siu Wang, who was playing some inspired tennis on, on Saturday this week. Really, you know, as a coach, you're always trying to figure out how you could have done things better or what you could have done. And I... I don't really think there was much. We, we we were playing good tennis. We had a, maybe a little bit of a slower start than we would have liked. And you always think that if you can stay in a match early on and get it to two all or three all maybe, but we weren't able to. And it's all credit to her in her first final. She We really have uh, nothing to be disappointed with really other than, you know, losing is always disappointing. But um, the match itself was just, she was the better player. So no no qualms. She you is very talented, left-hander not to be um, mixed up with Jinyu, but I certainly wasn't expecting that kind of performance. As you said, she was playing in her first WTA final and there's a lot of pressure, isn't there? She's playing in front of her home crowd against a player in the top 25 in the world. Were you surprised by how well she played? Oh, yes, I was. I, however, we played her about three years in Huahin and Magda beat her in the quarterfinals. And I'd gone back and watched that match the day before we played her this week, and she had points for 5-0. And it was a very similar match start to what she did against us this weekend and um, just came out and hit hit us off the court. I mean, forehand's got a lot of spin. Backhand, she can just step in and cr- crush balls. So it was um, it's a tough one. And then she served well. So I knew it was going to be tough. In Joaquin, we were able to conditions a little bit to our advantage it was quite windy that day so I remember to Magda on the on-court coaching we said we need to make this uglier because if we get into a ball striking contest with this girl we we aren't going to win that day and we turned the match around in three sets but I think she's playing much better tennis and, she, and the conditions for 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 her this weekend were really good the court was perfect speed and height for her I think she's one of those players that can be a top 10 player I think she's got all the weapons we didn't play badly at all. We were just beaten by a better player. So very surprising, but she had great crowd support. It was a brilliant atmosphere out there. Chinese fans were great, full stadium, a few thousand people. Your original question, yeah, I was surprised with how well she handled the occasion. There was a really big game at two all where Magda needed to hold serve. Yes. Two all and gone up three two. I think things could have could have made things a little bit interesting, but we weren't able to, so we have to uh 
move on, get better, move on. How is the team attitude after a loss like that? Is it better to lose pretty routinely or is it better to lose 7-6 in the third from a team emotional perspective? Yeah, I think whenever you lose in any round, first round or final, it hurts. It's disappointing. But a year ago, we'd lost in the final of India, Ruvitova, about the same time last year. And we'd had a 4-1 lead in the third set. That one hurt a lot more. Mm. This one, you, you made the final. You never were close to really winning the tournament. You know, you were so easily beaten in the final that there's not a lot of regret. We just weren't in the match. So... Um, I think there's less scars from this match. So it's easier to kind of say, okay, great week. If you'd have asked us before the week started, will we take that? I think there would have been, uh, we would have all been pretty wide with making a final, although you always want to win. I'm positive. Um, So you're in Guangzhou where you and Magda trained, as you said, you started working together there. It's the first full Asian swing since 2019. How is the overall feeling of being out in that region? Yeah, it's it's great to be back. I mean, Magda, for whatever reason, has always loved playing in Asia. She made um Huahin a couple of years ago. Right before that, she made the final of uh, Korea, where we also got our butt to us in the final by Mukova. Last year, we made the final of India. So we've always done well in Asia, for whatever reason. I think great events here. And the crowd support is second to none, either in India or Korea, China. It's they're really, really nice events. So um, it's always a pleasure to be back. And um, yeah, hopefully we've got three more weeks of events. So what is the plan for you tournament wise now? After we lost on Saturday, we moved to a different hotel in Guangzhou. It's a huge city. We've been here practicing. We had Sunday and Monday off, uh, sleep in, get a massage. And then tomorrow we will practice in the morning. It'll be Wednesday here tomorrow. Uh, practice in the morning and then head to Beijing uh, about 1.30 in the afternoon and then um, check into the hotel and start practice. The main draw starts Saturday. All right. That sounds good. I'm just looking at the race, actually. So obviously there's a couple of races going on. The top eight go to the WTA Tour Finale in Cancun. Then we've got nine through 20, which is the elite trophy in Zhuhai. Magda currently sits at 25th in the race. I'm sure you keep up with this. Um, so there's a chance, isn't there, that she can get inside the top 20. Donna Vekic, Alina Svitolina, who we know has finished her season, Jung Chinwen, Ludmilla Samsonova, Azarenka are all sitting 20 through 24. What are you feeling about your chances? You know, one of the things that is different player to player is how much you look at that stuff. And I think we learned this year that when we pay too much attention to that, it's it's a distraction. Mm. I think every time we step on the court, we're trying to win. We are aware of it. I think me and Ian are a little bit more aware of it than Magda is because I don't think it's it's a help to her. It's in the back of her mind. It's certainly not in the front of her mind. We're a good few hundred points away from getting into that race, really. So the reality is it's probably unlikely, but we, we have three tournaments. It'll run in one of them. There's a chance. I think Guangzhou was a good way to begin the Asian swing and hope we can pick up some points and maybe sneak in at the end of the season. Well, I can tell um, the listeners, and this is good news, that Mark's sunglass tan uh, has gone. It's faded, Mark. So well done, you. Has it? I think the light's just, I think you're being uh, complimentary because <laughs> I've got good lighting in this room this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's important, though, because you look very good. You look uh, very healthy. Have you sort of got your sleep back and feel much better after that horrendous flight that you took? It's a shame because of the way the event worked this week. Several delays in the tournament with the start times because it was too hot. There is a heat rule on the WTA side. 
the match hasn't started, you know, at a certain temperature, they don't allow players to go. And each day was supposed to start at 2 p.m. But due to the heat delay and a couple of rain delays and then long matches before us, in bed at any of us before two o'clock in the morning. On, so, you know, it kind of makes, it kind of throws off your sleeping habits again once you've just landed and you're trying to get rhythm back on track and then you have these late nights. So the last couple of days, even though we haven't been playing, I still have yet to get to sleep before about three o'clock. Hopefully uh, a good few sleeping pills and I'll be back on track. <laughs> Well, you look very lively. Um, so let's, we're going to do listener questions in just a minute. Let's now throw to the piece that uh, we did with Eddie Elliott. Again, he's the coach of Lauren Davis, a former world number 26. She's won a couple of titles with him, including one earlier this year. So let's hear from Eddie Elliott now. And uh, perhaps next week, Mark will give his reactions. Enjoy this. So, Eddie, okay. thanks very much for joining us. I'm essentially, if you don't mind starting off with, uh, you're the coach of Lauren Davis, how long you've been coaching, what you like about the tour, what you don't like about the tour, and perhaps a little bit about your tennis history. I've been coaching Lauren now for a little over five years, and she is the first player, I would say, that is on the tour that I, I kind of got uh, linked in with. As far as the tour goes, it's, it's a crazy life. You're traveling 40 weeks out of the year. Her family lives in Ohio. So in the summer times, we're training up there. We do our preseason down in Florida. Uh, I'm based in Florida, but I do in the summer times go up to Ohio so we can train there and kind of base out for the hard court series. So it's got me kind of living out of suitcase for 30, 40 weeks out of the year, um, which is the thing I love about it. And it's the thing I hate about it as well. Um, <laughs> it's kind of tough to, to set roots sometimes, but it's, it's an amazing job. Very unique, very fortunate to kind of see that side of tennis as well as different countries. I met you playing a pro-am. We were playing that exhibition in South Georgia. That was probably about 15 years ago. So you were a good player yourself. Yeah, um, I, I would say I'm a, uh, I am was a late bloomer that maybe never bloomed, but I loved <laughs> the sport. Um, I played college tennis, uh, played a little bit at Appalachian State University and then kind of transferred to a... Uh, Northwood University, which was here in Florida, um, tried my hand at some, you know, some futures and some club tennis over in Europe, which I absolutely loved, and then kind of um, got in the mix of tennis and coaching. And to be honest, through that time, I'd always been coaching to kind of pay bills. And also because I loved it, like as a tennis player, you develop these skills, you're around amazing coaches, and then other people want to learn these same skills. And it's a great uh, income, especially in college, that can fund, you know, your adventures as a tennis player trying to go play over in club tennis in Europe or even play some futures. So that's really the beginning of my start. And through then just kind of evolved and got deeper and deeper into coaching and was really fortunate enough to be around some really good coaches. Uh, we'll give them the credit and and yeah, which has kind of placed me here now. So how did you and Lauren meet? It's kind of a funny story. We have a, um, at the time, I was a little burnt out of tennis. I my family's in real estate and I dove into the real estate side, but I was still consulting, I call it, and helping players that were locally in South Florida. And South Florida is a, a hub. So players come here in the off season. I help them out a little bit, whether it was uh, hitting or coaching um, or just consulting, to be honest. And got linked up with one of Lauren's old coaches, 
uh, that kind of fell through and she went with another coach. But this whole time, kind of, we kind of kept a connection. I actually helped her with her first purchase, her real estate purchase, <laughs> which is kind of like an odd, odd end. Um, and then one off season, I helped her a little bit with her fitness. So I, it's funny, I was wearing all these different hats and she knew my background in tennis. And then really when Lauren took her break in tennis, um, she reached back out to me and said, hey, listen, I'm looking to get back out there. And I said, you know, I can help you temporarily, but I have this career in real estate. So she's like, well, can you travel for August? And I was like, well, August, September is kind of dead in Florida, people going back to school. So I was like, sure, we'll, we'll do the hardcourt series and then we'll figure it out. Well, we started having success. And I would say for about that first six months or one month turned into two months, turned into like the end of the year. And I was balancing both at the same time. And then we we had some major jumps in ranking. And I kind of thought to myself, like, real estate's always going to be there. This is working well. Lauren's a great person, uh, which um, goes a long way, especially if you've got to travel with someone constantly. <laughs> like, uh, so that helped out. And I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll give this more a full-time shot. And that's, you know, we were off to the races by then. I think in the first six months, Lauren had already been 23 or 26 in the world. So it wasn't like her ranking was where she was at, but we started when she was 260 something and we jumped like a hundred ranking spots in six, uh, six months. And then the next six months we broke top hundred and then we just had some momentum and it was like, okay, well, let's see how far we can take this. Did you find she was very coachable then when you started with her? I found that she was unbelievable at taking good advice. I will preface good advice because, you know, she's a top tier athlete um, and you can't make mistakes as much uh, co communicating what you want. I also will say like, it took some time for us to establish some, some trust. She knew that I was new to the tour. She, she knew the type of people that I had mentored underneath. So there was some like established faith, but it still takes some time for a player to like, Hey, you know, does this guy really know what he's talking about? And that's not something that just happens like a switch. I know a lot of coaches are like, you know, my player doesn't listen to me. And it's like, yeah, but you have to also build that rapport and build that communication with that player and really communicate on their level and then give it a, a, like a, a tried effort. And not to jump topics, but one of my pet peeves on the tour is like, there's so much coach and player switching. Mm. And sometimes overall, I feel like it hurts the players because they never establish trust and like a real rapport with their team and players. If you look at the top level, like they've been with their coaches forever. Yeah. Uh, and then as soon as you start jumping, jumping from coach to coach, you're looking for the wrong thing. In my eyes, a coach needs, I would say, one month on the road, and you can't change that much on the road because it's competition. As you know, being a player, it's like, and then like two months in an off season to be like, oh, can this guy drive my game or add to my game where mm -hmm. I see benefit? And so that's like a quasi three-month period. And if you don't have that, it's, it's really tough to kind of gauge, one, if he's a good coach or not. And honestly, more importantly, 
is if you guys' personality matches. Yeah. And I, I was going to ask you about the Maria Sacri tom Hill relationship, because a lot of people have questioned that, the fact that she's only won one title. It was back 2019. Was she in the right coaching situation? And obviously, Guadalajara wasn't the hardest 1,000-level event of all time, but she still won it. And now the questions will go away, won't they? So like you said, sometimes maybe it's worth just sticking with it and, and seeing what happens next. A hundred percent. I mean, there's been a couple players like that. I know uh, friends with Iga's old coach and he was with her from juniors to all the way winning French Open. So like you're dealing with such a finite group of people that it's it's great to try to draw common lines. But there's it's so many people play tennis and you're looking at such a small pool of it that everyone has their unique way of how they got there and their unique team of how they got there. And, you know, it also takes time to build on that. There's not like this quick, easy, let me go get a million dollar coach and I win a slam. It's, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not that, it's not that easy. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. We actually had uh, Piotr Szczepatowski on the podcast a couple of months ago. And it was pretty interesting because we asked him about the talent level of ego. And he said, really, you know, she's the same as all top players. She's not more special But when she practices, her practices aren't longer, but they are perhaps more intense than anyone he's ever met before. And I was going to ask you about that. What's your practice with Lauren like when you're not playing competition? I I would say that was one of my biggest growing steps as working with someone on tour and then working with, I would say a lot of my coaching was either consulting, so in in and out or development stages whether it's getting ready for college or high school um, or lower level professional, but there's still so much room there. It's it's a fun stage to be at as a coach because you can make big impacts, but then at the highest level, it's these little, these little changes that make, they're not sexy or fun. Sometimes they're just like a little tweak here. And it's like, Whoa, that can take a lot. And so beginning stages of working with Lauren, I feel like I had to get very detailed, like even now, I would say two years ago is where I really adopted a a practice schedule where we're, our practices are to the minute. And it sounds, mm. it's not, it's not as neurotic as it sounds, but it is efficient and it is for the player, especially if they're, you know, they've done the four hours of grinding and coaches yelling at them when they were a junior, they want to get to the, the, the nuts and bolts of, the problem or the solution or, you know, the step up of how to bring their game to the next level. And so it's by giving them uh, efficient time, they also know how to push themselves. So if I say, Hey, listen, we're doing a drill for 10 minutes. Lauren doesn't have to worry about holding anything back. She knows I need this much energy. I'm going to push to, uh, and the the drill is only 10 minutes long. Mm -hmm. And once it's done, it's done. And there's no open ended, time limit where they're just kind of dragging along and they're like, okay, I got it. I mean, to be honest, sometimes Lauren gets it in like 30 seconds. It's like, okay, that was it. That's what I needed to know. Let's move on. And I'm like, all right, that was easy. (laughs) And are you the hitter or do you employ someone who hits with her so you can be on her end? I would say a mixture. Our off season uh, probably starts more hitting with her. And then as we kind of start ramping up, try to bring in players and maybe some other hitters, to kind of one, I, I prefer that to be honest, just because it's easier to work mm. work on I, you, the voices behind you. You know, we live in Palm Beach Gardens, so there's not a lot of 
easy hits here. We got to go down to Boca or Fort Lauderdale. So a lot of the work we'll do feeding and live hitting for the beginning of our preseason. And then um, we really try to like up, you know, matches and maybe I'll pull some other players or some college players locally to hit with mm-hmm. her. I spoke to Mark about this um, because obviously a lot of players get guys to hit with, but the ball, the spin is very different when a man is playing as opposed to a woman. So how do you arrange the practices and who do you get for the match practice? Yeah, so I would say this is where sometimes Lauren and I butt heads, but I also like look for outside evidence other than what we how we're doing it. Like I know the hitting, the hitting partner of Serena uh, or one of her hitting partners and that a couple – Top players, they have guy hitters. And I'm not saying that they hit the ball super heavy. Like, they are hitting it a little flatter, a little cleaner. But I do think there's a lot of benefits, especially in the beginning of preseason, to make the girls feel uncomfortable with guys, a guy's ball with a, a little more uh, a little more spin, a little heavier. They move, you know, they're getting more balls in the rally, so it's not as fast, flat, flat winner. It's like, okay, I'm hitting against this guy. Maybe he can't hurt me. Maybe he's a runner, but I can't hit a winner on him. Or mm-hmm. maybe this guy's ball is like super heavy and I'm hitting on clay with him. And now when I go to the clay, like a, a girl that's trying to hit heavy, I have no problem with. So I think there's a balance there, but you gotta you gotta play with it. I don't think it's one way or the other. I think a mixture is is good. I kind of take the principle of like variability is really good. It's it's hard to point to one thing for success, but it's easy to point to the variability of something and exposing a player to something and to attribute that more to success is like, hey, we saw this before. You know what this is like. You know, it's not a surprise. Yeah. And we might not work on it as much or maybe we need to work on it more, but like you've exposed your player to that. So they're not going out there blind. Hmm. I spoke with uh, Arena Sabalenka's data analysis uh, expert. She works with data-driven sports. And Shane Leonard runs the company. He was saying that Sabalenka's hitting partner, if you tell him to play like Lauren Davis or like Magda Lynette or like Elena Rabakina, he can actually do it. I would love to see that. I'm sure there's some talented guys out there and I'm sure it can be pretty close. I don't, I would love to see that. Honestly, that's really cool. If the guy is that talented of a player, to that's why he's with Sabalenka, and that's why Sabalenka is where she's at. You know what I mean? I I do feel like there is a little edge where sometimes girls stop hitting with girls, so you don't you you never get to really practice with them, so there's never a comfort level. Mm. But on the flip side, I like to say is like they don't have that comfort level either. Like if they're not practicing with you and you're not practicing with them, you can shock them just as much as they can shock you. Makes sense. When you're out playing tournaments, um, do you look for another female player to hit with Lauren before her matches or if you have an off day? Or do you usually hire one of the guys that's usually a college level player like at the US Open? I know they had quite a few college or graduates on the male side. I would say at tournaments, it's tough uh, just because you just never know what you're going to, you don't know the hitting partners. So you don't know what type of ball they hit. So generally Lauren knows what type of ball I hit. So either I'll hit with her or we'll find a girl. Unless the, the, the major time that we ask for a hitting partner on, uh, on tour is when we know we're playing a lefty. And yes. if they have a lefty hitting partner, 
that um, or lefty girl, that's kind of how we deal with that. But as far as hitters, it's just too much fluctuation. So we generally don't do that. Not that we do, like sometimes we do, but generally not, I would say. All right, fair enough. Um, we're speaking in September and you are no longer playing. Season is over. Is that right for you? Unfortunately, this kind of taps into probably two topics. One, it's WTA's schedule this year. I wouldn't say is the best. I think that's a general consensus. And two, we're, we're stopping early. A little more out of prevention. We, we got banged up a little bit towards the end of the season uh, with another topic, the heavy-duty balls. And so we had two tournaments left. But we had a two-week break in between, which puts us then two more two more weeks for a tournament, which is like a four four week swing. And we just kind of decided like, hey, let's cut it a little early, let's get this figured out, and let's ramp up preseason and come back stronger than than ever. Because we had we really had some really good strides this year. And to ensure that physically next year is kind of the main goal. Yeah, we'll talk about uh, Lauren's title this season in just a minute. You mentioned the extra duty balls, and that's a topic that Mark and I were talking about as well. You're talking about what they used at the US Open, because last year they used the regular duty. This year they were using the extra duty, and it seemed like about, in my opinion, about 99% of the women did not like the extra duty balls. Was that your feeling? Uh, Yeah, especially maybe some that said they wanted them. I don't think they did as well this season with the extra duty balls, so... I'm a little uh, I'm a little confused by the whole situation. I don't think there's a good explanation, and I don't think it was executed right. I that being said, like I'm always open, uh, and I think players are always open for stuff that betters their sport. But I think there's uh, a better approach to kind of execute things, especially when it's something as as important as the ball. When it comes to like a large group of girls that are you know traveling and that's their livelihood and it it, was it affecting Lauren's arm elbow yeah um for us it did I mean first practice with them it it affected uh she felt it right away and so we went on this journey uh I was talking to all the stringers and coaches people were dropping poundages and and without changing rackets or changing specs mid-season we kind of went that route to kind of figure something out that was manageable. And we ended up, uh, like people find this interesting, Lauren was, we started the year like high 40s, uh, low 50s. Which and by the end Pounds, yes. <laughs> and by end of heart, by, by US Open, we were at 25, pound, 25, 23 pounds, which is kind oh. of, kind of ridiculous. But um, yeah, it, it you got to get creative sometimes to figure out, you know, like how, how to compete. And Lauren is a fighter and a competitor. And so she's going to figure out a way how to compete. And that was that was one way we, we did it. That is very loose. That's kind of Adrian Manorino level. Not quite, but uh, almost. Um, Lauren yeah. is one of the shortest players on the tour. How does she cope with the power? If you get a six foot, six foot one, Elena Rabakina, Irina Sabalenka with these gigantic shoulders and Lauren, how on earth does she possibly cope with that? I, I think Lauren, um, her tennis IQ and her like her instinctual tennis IQ is off the charts. Her her timing is how she really competes with these girls. Uh, it was two years ago, maybe three years ago, we were in, she had a tight match against Venus and 
Venus after the match goes like, I can't believe a girl that size is hitting the ball harder than I am. <laughs> and so Lauren's timing and her footwork, uh, I would say on the competition side and the tactical side, she is consumed about uh, all around tennis player. You know, we know that we're not going to just go out there and be full power, but she also has a lot of weapons. So we need to figure out ways how to dismantle bigger hitters, but then still allow Lauren to use her power and, mm-hmm. and dictate the game. And so that's kind of our, how she kind of competes against against the bigger hitters. So when um, you you know who you're playing against, say it's first round, Lauren's been drawn against X, how are you doing the scouting? Are you looking at YouTube? Are you going out to look at the player themselves practice? Are you talking to coaches? Uh, a mixture just depends. You don't want to step on some toes. Like you got to be respectful uh, as far as, I would say the U.S. coaches do a, a good job of talking to each other if you need help. USTA sends me what I need as far as numbers go. And then we have a database of matches and recent matches. So I'll dive into the match side and then kind of figure out something where like a game plan that we've talked about that hopefully fits into Lauren's strengths against her weaknesses and how we can get more of her strengths against uh, opponent X's weakness. And that's kind of how we approach it. But it's funny. I I was uh, Joko after the Alcaraz match said something like a lot, a lot of players get, or people get caught up in these game plans. And it's like, there's a certain point where you give this, these principles to your player. And I I would imagine all players are different. Some may be a little more type A that like really stick to these plans exactly. And some a little more fluid. And Joko kind of put it pretty straightforward. He's like, yeah, we have a game plan, but once we start competing, we're competing. And that's how... I, how Lauren takes game plans is like I give her a game plan maybe during matches because a new rule set we I can remind her throughout certain things and we can do little cues but at the end of the day she's competing and and, and letting her game work for her have you got a little black book and not in that way but um after you've say played somebody are you writing strengths and weaknesses and things that you noticed yeah, so I have my notes. Lauren makes fun of my notes. She's like, what are you writing? Or what's in, what's in your notebook? You're always journaling. And I, I got all my like my little cues or like little patterns that I've seen over the years now. And like now even, you know, when we start playing people two or three or four more times, when I say something now, it kind of sticks because it's like, oh, yeah, you said that last time when I played her. Yeah, and I really noticed it. So like it helps kind of build that trust. As well, you know, over time, you just become better and more aware of, of, of the tennis world. Did you see that statistic at the US Open that showed Madison Keys was the second biggest hitter at the tournament? Sabalenka was number four, and that's with the men. So that's off the ground. Wow. No, I didn't, I didn't see that stat. Are you surprised by that? No, because both those girls hit the crap out of the ball. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, it's... It, we. Unfortunately, we we weren't 100%, but we played Sabalenka this year and after uh, Australia. And I really think when I saw her practicing and how they were practicing, the, the way that she was structuring her game and play, like, executing on her game was fitted right for her. And she felt comfortable in to execute that, really hitting her spots on her serve, the plus one tennis, like 
she believed in it and it like it, it's paid off for her and watching that and then we played against her i think in dubai and i was, I was like man like when this girl's on it, it's a tough task to step up so yeah both those girls can can really hit really the ball and i think both of them particularly sabalenka looks so fit how much work is lauren doing off court I would say uh, during season, it's always a balance because the more tennis you play, and we played a lot of tennis in the beginning of the, the year, it's it's a tough balance because it's a good thing that you're winning matches, but you're also using those days as, as recovery days because you're playing another match where maybe if you're in a time where you lose a match and now you have a week to sit around, it's like, okay, you can get some solid workouts in, keep your fit, maintain your fitness level and jump into next week. But you have a couple weeks in a row where you keep winning and winning and winning, which is a good thing. Your fitness level kind of takes a hit. And it's really trying during the season to maintain. And I I would say this year was tough for us because when we hit that maintain air, our maintaining time was dealt with these injuries that kind of popped up this year. And that's why I said we kind of had this quasi successful year. We had a lot of little injuries and that time normally was spent more on workouts and now this year it was more rehab uh, and making sure that we're healthy for the next week. But going forward into preseason, that will be like a, a big focus of ours. When does preseason start? How much time off now do you have completely off tennis? Yeah, this is the longest period of time, at least me working with her, that we will have. This year she's actually jumping right into fitness. We'll put the rackets down for a little bit. We'll take care of you know, any little issues that we were lingering with these extra duty balls. But I would say middle of October, she'll probably start hitting lightly and we'll start sometime in November and we'll do six weeks of a preseason. Um, five and a half to six weeks is basically like, you know, throw Thanksgiving in there and a few days for Christmas. But that's about as long as our preseason goes. And you do have points to defend come January because Lauren, of course, won her title. Tell me about that and how exciting it was. Oh, the title was amazing. I mean, um, it was our second title together, but any title is amazing, especially when you kind of see everything clicking. I mean, it was one of those tournaments. I don't think she dropped a set. And honestly, it it, it sounds, it almost sounds like cliche to stay, but like I wasn't surprised because we had a great preseason. I know the level of tennis and the level where she's she was at, like we we really had some momentum building the previous summer and we just kind of built on that in our preseason. And so going into Australia, I was so excited because I knew like she had really locked on and grabbed, like she was just building as a player out there. So I wasn't um, surprised, but I was extremely excited. <laughs> so it was it was amazing. Like I said, to win any title out there is an awesome time. And I'm just so happy because, like I said, you know, it's not all tennis. Like she, Lauren's a great person as well. Mm. And she, she deserves it. And she works hard. I mean, she just said she's going into her 14th season on tour, which is incredible. So like, you, you know, you, you dedicate such a large part of your life to this sport. It's really nice when um, success comes. You get some vindication for all your hard work. Um, do you exactly. see her playing for several more years, given that she's already done 14? And does she love it as much as she did at the beginning, do you think, when you started working with her? No, I think she loves it more now than when I started working with her. Yeah, con- considering especially where we started and 
like that ability to climb back, I don't think a lot of players do. And that is so grueling. Uh, like we were playing like 60 and 80 Ks. It's kind of like she had previously two years prior been 26 in the world playing slams and stuff to have the grit and mentality to be like, uh, I got to play those tournaments and come all the way back is like beyond that. That's where, you know, like there's a reason why these players are top hundred in the world. That is something special. Mm. Um, and she does, she deserves to be there. And I would say now she probably enjoys it more than ever, more from a veteran point of view. I don't want to speak for her, but just based on my experience, I would say that she kind of, you know, she enjoys where she's at. She's like, Oh, let's go check this restaurant. out. I've been here you know, enjoy the a little more of the places you're going to instead of just tennis, tennis, tennis. And the funny thing is that kind of shows on the court. It's like when you're enjoying your time off the court, you know, you're enjoy, you enjoy your time on the court as well. So many pros say that when they retire, they say, I wish we'd enjoyed it more. And it sounds like Lawrence making the most of it. Do you find, you said right at the beginning that you love it and, you know, there's a, another part that isn't so fun, all the traveling. Do you find you have a good group of friends around the tour that you can hang out with um yeah each year you, you kind of you start to make friends with the guys that are there year after year and now you know I mean I would say in the coaches realm I'm still very young but I've been on tour five years so you see the faces week after week and you start making relationships and it it, it in a weird way it's kind of like a little family so there's always you know you start making connections and it's 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 cool to hang out outside of tennis realm, even though I keep finding myself always talking tennis when we're hanging out. It's like, guys, like, can we talk about something else? But we all love it. And so that's why we're all, you know, we're always, you're all there. We're always talking it. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, I remember Mark actually saying he and Ian, uh, at the beginning of last year, instead of pushing Magda as hard as they had done before, they actually lightened up on the preseason training. And then of course she got to the semifinals, of the Australian Open. Is that something that you would say you've changed your ways as you've gone through the years? I think it's a trap for most coaches, this push, 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 push. You need it to a certain degree. But if it starts giving negative returns, like you're doing more harm than good with a player. And especially when players get older, they get way, way more efficient and they need their time to be valued. And if you don't value that and you run them into a ground, they're not going to perform on the court. Mm. It's funny, like all these players that have these breakout years, I've yet to hear one say, oh, yeah, I practice way more. A lot of times you hear, oh, I had this mental coach help me process my emotions better. Or maybe I had a physical coach, you know, help me get a little stronger in a different realm. But I've yet to hear someone say, oh, I hit more tennis balls. I won more matches. It's kind of like all these girls are training hard. Everyone's hitting a lot of tennis balls, right? So like if you're going to run down that trail, like everyone's doing it, it's, that's almost like the low-hanging fruit, and they've done it for years. Mm. It's these other areas, and like, you, I mean, we've all heard like tennis is 80%, 90% mental. So if that's the case, why are you pushing your player four or five hours on the court, especially if it's hurting them mentally? It's like there's a mental approach and – sensitivity that has to be there and you hear a lot of times it's like hey I'm feeling good off the court and that's kind of translated onto the court that's not to justify not working 
just yes. to clarify that. But there is, a, and that's what I think good coaches bring to the table is they have a good sensitivity of they know how to get good work out of their players, but they also know what makes them tick. And just finally, because I've taken a lot of your time, Eddie, thank you more than I, uh, I um, promised I would. Um, I was just no looking words. at um, American tennis when I commentated on Guadalajara. And actually, the girl that uh, played Caroline Garcia, who's ultra talented. Hayley Baptiste. Thank you. Hayley Baptiste. That's oh, it. yeah. She was 25th in the United States. That was her ranking. 25th best in the United States. I think she was 170. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, unbelievable talent. Yeah. Like, um, I, I think she dealt with some injuries because she was kind of playing a lot when we were playing earlier and like kind of making some some headway, but like obviously a lot younger than us. And um, I love her game. I, I you, you spot on. I think she she kind of has like a guy forehand, good yep. drive back in, good serve, great hands. There's a couple girls that I feel like in the especially like Caroline Dohide. I mean, unbelievable serve, uh, unbelievable player, but like huge serve. Yeah, and that another American girl that I was like, man, she, she need she's going to be top hundred and. You know, these girls are, are kind of now figuring it out and making their way into those ranks. And I think Haley as well, like unbelievable talent. She has a great future ahead of her. It's like, wow, American women's tennis is really, really strong. A lot of girls come, coming together. I mean, even on the guys' side, it, it's funny to see how many American players are at these slams. Like, I know American slams, we want preference, but it's also like the USGA Federation has to cater to all of us. And it's like, wow. Mm. There's a lot of American tennis going on, which is awesome to see. Yeah, it's good. Everybody's hunting in packs, and I think it's been really helping and motivating everybody. Eddie Elliott, thank you very much for your time. I hope um, I'll see you in Australia next year. Sounds good. Thank you. And good luck defending those points, and uh, have a nice rest, and thanks very much for chatting. Always. I'll see you in Australia. So that was uh, Eddie Elliott, coach of former world number 26, Lauren Davis, a winner of two titles on the WTA Tour. It'll be great to hear your reactions. And we'll also hear Mark's reactions in next week's podcast. Uh, but now, Mark, let's turn to our listener questions. And we've got one from Erica referring to the performance buys, which have been in the news just recently. Elena Rabakina said she didn't agree with them. I believe they were given to Maria Sakkari and to Caroline Garcia in Tokyo. Correct me if I'm wrong. They did well in Guadalajara, the 1,000. So they're trying this performance by where they're giving these two players a route into the second round where everyone else has to play first rounds. And from what it sounded like, Rebecca in her last year's Wimbledon champion wasn't too pleased about it. Perhaps she was asking for a buy and didn't get one. Uh, but she also didn't play last week. So just give us your take. I think there's two parts to that question. The first part is there is a rule. The rule has been in place. It was implemented uh, some time ago. It was announced to all the players. So players like Rybakina would have been aware of this rule. It's very clear on the entry forms when they players enter the tournament, the fact sheets. The reason being is that obviously there's a level event in Guadalajara, mm-hmm. which is a mandatory event. So any player that elects not to play it will receive a zero number for one of their 16 counted tournaments in their ranking. So each year, the players that play events, the best 16 events, and you take the total of those points. If you don't play Guadalajara, you get a zero. Okay. For us, we get a zero because you're allowed to miss one mandatory a year. And also, I should add that that only counts if you are a direct acceptance into the main draw. Now, because obviously that event is in Mexico and going day after the final is an event on the in another continent, 
there's no way that they can expect those players to get from Saturday or Sunday, whenever the final was, and make it to Asia. So this rule with the performance buys, which used to be something on the WTA tour many years ago that was used more frequently. You really want to market that player and promote that player at next week's event. Right. That's the player that's doing well. But all too often, the player that plays Sunday, does well, wins, is required to then play on the Monday, the very next day in a different city, or if they're lucky, a Tuesday. The performance buys were for that reason. So I understand the rationale behind it. I think that this year, uh, for a number of different reasons laid out, hasn't been particularly uh, efficient or player-friendly at certain moments. Like you can see here, going from 1,000 in Guadalajara, and a week later, you've got a thousand in Beijing, like we've discussed before in the past on previous episodes, where Rome and Madrid, which are both one thousand level events, mm. and then there's nothing all the way through the grass until in Canada, Montreal, or Toronto. So I understand the performance buy was put in. I think Elena would have known that in advance. So I understand her frustration, but the reality is the rule was put in, and she would have known going in that if two mm. players did do well, or up to four performance buys were given for Tokyo. Oh, I understand. Okay, and I actually made a mistake. So Iga Swiatek as the number one seed did get a buy into the second round, as did Jesse Pagula. She was the second seed. And then the other bits were correct, where Garcia, who reached the semifinals in Guadalajara, and of course the champion in Guadalajara, Maria Sapri, both received those performance buys. So you've helped us out a lot. And actually... Uh, your last answer works well with our next question, which was from Alex, and it was about the mandatory events, which he doesn't really understand. So if you could just put that plainly again, for the mandatory events, which aren't absolutely mandatory, it sounds like. <laughs> Complicated part is that next year it's going to change slightly with the 2024 WTA restructuring. Players can play as many tournaments as they want in a year. Let's play 35 events. They don't get to just add points to their total. So they don't get to, to use those 35 events, best 16 events. and say, Because otherwise you'd run into a situation where whoever played the most events became mm-hmm. number one or very highly ranked. So they said, no, no, 16 events. So you have four Grand Slams, okay? Yeah. In uh, Wimbledon, French Open, Australian Open, Australia, whichever one I missed, US. Yes. Down to 12 events, okay? Now you've got the one level events which are mandatory now you can only skip one of those per year per calendar year you can skip one this only counts for players that are directly accepted into main draw and of ones like dubai doha is usually uh rome madrid wells miami guadalajara jing cincinnati so there's however many of those there are. Maybe there's seven or eight mandatories. Yep. So you add that to the other Grand Slams, which are going to count. That leaves you with five or six. I need to double check on that. So of those 16, maybe let's say 11 or 12, right? Or 12 other ones you fill up with whatever best events you've done. So, you know, and that's the tough part because sometimes Magda plays an event, she wins two really good matches and gets 60 points. Not count towards one of her 16 because maybe three weeks ago she did well and won two matches. So the 60 points she got this week doesn't override 70 from the week before. Okay. So you don't always add points. It's nice to build up if you have 60, 70 points that you haven't used yet. So let's say this week in Guangzhou, we made the final. That's 180 points. However, Magda didn't get 180 this week because this time a year ago, 
she lost in the quarterfinals of Korea, which was worth 60 points. Okay. So what she's, in theory, is getting 120 points this week. Because she lost 60 from last year. I hope that makes some sense. And there are nine, I just looked it up and checked, there are nine 1,000 level events. So the players that would get direct entry, either 64 or however many, they can miss one, so they have to play the other eight. What happens if they're injured? So they've already missed one, and then they're injured for two more. What happens then? Players are allowed to skip two events per year, free of charge, basically. They uh, get out of jail free cards, but they don't, you can't use them in mandatory events. So you do, you can use one in a mandatory, directly accepted. It's just, I believe it's just unfortunate. It's going to get a zero then. Okay. And and, and I understand from the player side, that's tough. But I also understand from a tournament side, they're trying to guarantee that in the 1,000 level premier level events that they get the best field. Because I think there's an argument to be made that Guadalajara did not get that this year Mm. because of a number of extenuating circumstances. The field was not as significantly strong as as most are. Yeah, you're right. Well, Ostebo was the top seed, wasn't she? As the world number eight, I believe now. So the top seven were not there for various reasons, which was a shame. But overall, it was a great tournament, as was Guangzhou. So congratulations to you and Team Lynette for a final appearance. And uh, we'll leave it there, Mark, but we'll do it all again next week. And hopefully you'll have some good news once more to uh, to give us. Thanks a lot, Candy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. All right. We'll do it all again. Uh, Mark and Candy signing off for this week. I hope you enjoy the tennis.